It's our change episode. We'll talk about some of the effects of the new baseball rule changes, what we like and what we don't like, plus a detailed strategy discussion all about fab. What's the right amount to bid on a potential top 50 player? What's the right amount for a top 100 player? And so on and so forth. Columnist Joe Sheehan joins us on the Beat the Shift podcast coming up next. And welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. My softball all rained out. It's been uh, terrible this whole week. All my games rained out. New York has been just, ooh, it's been a mess here. How about you? Same with me. My softball game on Sunday was rained out. My son's game was rained out. But hopefully, nice weather's coming. And listen, the weather's affecting the games, the major league baseball games also. I mean, the Mets were rained out like four out of five games or something like that. Yeah, here we go again with uh, the story. Mets looked pretty bad against Detroit. Uh, Verlander and Scherzer made their triumphant, well, it wasn't triumphant, return to Detroit. And uh, Mets just lost, just got swept by the Tigers. I, that yes, this is true and very heartbreaking, but uh, that's that's baseball. Hopefully, we'll uh, we'll come with a nice run coming soon. Right, but it's only May. It's only May fourth. May the fourth be with you. That's when we're taping this, and hopefully, everything will turn around from here. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, we've got a great show today, um, and uh, we're calling it our changes episode. And we've got a fantastic person to. Uh, Talk all about some rule changes, about fab and whatnot. He's Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Newsletter. Um, welcome to the show, Joe. How are you? Good, Ariel. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, having me on here, Ravane. Well, appreciate you being on here. Um, and, uh, you know, I was going to say, I, I met you for the first time just uh, about two months ago at Tout Wars, and I come up to you and, uh, hey, uh, hi, Joe, I'm Ariel Cohen. How are you doing? And the first thing you said, oh, you're a legend. I'm like, no, Joe, you're the legend. <laughs> Well, I didn't even hear, I've actually heard Ian Khan do an impersonation of you more than I've heard your own voice, or at least I had until recently. <laughs> so uh, that that's kind of that, that's where the legend comes from. But uh, no, it's I'm, it's great to come on. I've listened to the pod; it's great stuff. I'm, uh, I, I I think because I've gotten back into the industry leagues, I'm consuming a lot more fantasy uh, pods out there, and uh, it's just it, it's such a fun way to come at the game. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff. It's the golden age of fantasy baseball podcasts and and articles and everything. It's uh, it's hard to sneak by any player these days because everybody reads everything and listens to everything and such good content uh, out there. And uh, hopefully, we'll provide some good stuff today. So we get right into it on the show here. And I you know, just wanted to get your general take right now on on the whole baseball with the rule changes. And Joe, what do you think so far has been the biggest rule change, or let's say it, let's say this way, which MLB rule change has had the largest effect so far? Well, I'm sitting here at nine o'clock on a Thursday night, and there's no baseball to watch, so I'm going to say it's the the pitch clock. Uh, there's no question that it's it's done what baseball wanted it to do. Yeah, I don't think I think pace became kind of a the the watchword for length, and it certainly lengthened the games by excuse me, shortened the games by about a half hour. Uh, certainly you know, changed fan behavior. You can't get there in the second inning anymore and expect to hang out for three hours. Uh, this has been very widely positively received, certainly by the the media covering the game with the shorter nights, and you really notice it. 
you know, when you're at the game, there's just, there's less time to BS between pitches. Certainly the, there's not as much, there's still not uh, as much action as you'd like. Strikeout rates are still high. Walk rates are still high. You don't really have the ball and play game that we used to have in the, in the 80s, but it has shortened the game. I think that's by and large the, the biggest effect. Yeah, I, I agree. Ruvain, do you disagree at all? I think the best change and the biggest change is the non-throw over to first base by pitchers. That has changed the fact of how stolen bases are. We're going back, like you said, to the 80s, where stolen bases are much more prevalent, and it's giving baseball a different aspect, meaning you have the pitch clock, it speeds everything up, but if you have a, if you have a runner on first, you have to watch the pitch clock, you have to watch the guy on first, First, and there's more stealing, there's more running just because there are less throws over. Stolen bases are up, it means offense is up, and I think that's good overall for baseball. That's the best thing that they could, that can happen because baseball had the lockout earlier at the, end, the beginning of last year. What what the, was the only thing that helped get baseball back on track, and that was when they had the home run contest basically between Barry between Barry Bonds and, and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Offense brought fans back, and that was the idea behind this to try to get offense going again. Ruvain, that's a great point. If you go look at throughout baseball history, uh, attendance and interest has gone almost in a direct line with uh, offensive levels. There was a downturn in the 1960s. That's when they moved the, they uh, lowered the mound and they shortened the strike zone. We had a dead period of offense in the 1980s that pants turned away from the game. And then as you say, after the 94 strike, offense went up, interest went up. That's a pretty much throughout baseball history. You can draw a straight line between or a relationship between run scoring and the success of the game. Absolutely. And and Joe, what rule changes that they ha- have implemented so far, maybe that you like more than others, or maybe is there a rule change that you dislike and you wish they hadn't done it or done it differently? Yeah, I have no use for the shift ban, for telling teams where they can play or not play their defenders. It was um, There's a balance between the game throughout history, and this to me was just something that you had to expect offenses to, to counter, okay? We're going to put three guys over here. You can hit it to our defenders or you can hit it the other way, but it's up to you. And MLB kind of came in and put their thumb on the scale and saying, well, no, you, you can't put your defenders where you think the ball is going to be hit. I think it's an utterly ridiculous rule philosophically. It also doesn't get what they want. MLB... And let's face it, guys, this was a rule that was put in because people just didn't like the way it looked. Boomers didn't like the way it looked with a, you know, the extra infielder in short right field. But it also wasn't going to change uh, behavior. Under the shift, if a hitter wanted to spray the ball, he had the entire thing about left-handed hitters up. He had, there's one guy standing between second and third base. Hit it that way. But hitters weren't doing that. Well, they're not going to do it now when defenses are saying, well, that line drive to, to right field, that's going to be a hit now. So... MLB, by banning the shift, is providing an incentive for these hitters to hit the exact same way they're always hitting. If you look at the numbers in the early going, hitters are pulling the ball as much as they did last year. They're hitting fly balls as much as they did last year. They're striking out as much as they did last year. So this is essentially a subsidy for the type of hitting that baseball was nominally trying to get out of the game. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, certain hitters who are going to pull are just going to pull no matter where mm-hmm. you put the fielders. And we we had Vinny Pasquantino on the show before the season, and he said, listen, I, I ain't that fast. So the difference between a single, you know, me getting on first doesn't do much, right? We want me to go and hit a double. We want me to go hit a homer. Um, so you can ban the shift. I'm not going to bunt down the third base line. You know, I'm not going to do that. So for guys like him, I guess it helps. But for the others who want to spray it to change it, yeah, it might have the opposite effect. 
But you've got two guys on the left side of the, the, the infield now instead of one where there was last year. So it's kind of a that's been a frustrating thing for me trying to get this through to MLB that the this this change that you're making is both philosophically wrong and it's not going to get you the results you want. Other than that, I think it's fine. Ruvain, any uh, changes that you dislike? Yeah, I hate the ghost runner. I, I don't I don't like that 10th inning ghost runner. If they want to do it, let's say in the 14th or 15th inning because they're scared of hurt, uh, the pitcher's getting hurt, that's fine. But to put a runner on second without having him to earn that spot, not only that, the runner who's on second was the one who made the last out in the ninth inning. So why would he deserve to go on second base? Um, I just don't like it. I think you, you have to, baseball, you have to walk. You have to get a hit. You have to find a way to get on base. You have to earn your way on. Putting a guy on second, they did that in, in because of COVID. They wanted the games to end quick. I understand that. But now if the games are going quicker and they're half hour quicker, there's no need for that ghost runner because the games are going to finish early anyway. I did realize we were – that if we're considering that, because I think of that as a rule that came in in 2020, that's one of the worst rules in baseball history. I'm completely with you, Ravane. I, <laughs> it's, it's a rule designed to get games over with. It's a thing you do in a, a youth tournament when you've got to play five games a day on the same field or in softball tournaments, I know I've used it as well. To do it in Major League Baseball where the games count is a joke. Well, they made it official for this year. Before, it was, it was just temporary. Now they made it official. That's why I counted it as a rule. You're right. Yeah, and I think it has to do with uh, if if the pitch clock came first, they probably would not have had this rule. Like, I think the order of operations because of COVID and they did it, whatever it was, uh, it wouldn't have happened had they tried the pitch clock first. So it's it's uh, maybe they'll take it out. You never know. Um, and, and yes, I do agree. It's like, I mean, in general, I just like less games. I mean, I know the games are quicker. That's great. But, you know, if I go to a ball game, I, I, I'm paying for a ticket. I want to get the most enjoyment out of it. I don't mind if it's a three-and-a-half-hour game. I'd rather a three-and-a-half-hour game than a two-and-a-half-hour game. It's less time to talk to my friends. It's mm-hmm. less time for me to veg out. It's a service cut. I, I remember when, when the doubleheaders during the, COVID, uh, the post-COVID year was seven innings, and I'm like, I'm now, I'm, now I'm getting 14 innings of baseball instead of 18? Uh, it, uh, I'm getting gypped here. So I see it as the other way. And uh, the other thing I'd say is that, and I know Glenn Colton uh, talks about this, and I'll actually have uh, Glenn Colton on shortly on this show, that, you know what, in the ninth inning, um, maybe don't have the pitch clock because, you know, there's drama, and part of the baseball is the buildup, right? Oh, you get the single. Oh, it's now bases loaded. And there's drama in it. And when you rush the pitch because, because of a pitch clock and don't let the drama play out, some of the best moments are when you just see the pitcher waiting or, or, or not, and then, and then you anticipate the buildup. You don't want to get rid of that completely. So I'd be fine if they tinkered the rules to say, you know, maybe in the ninth inning, don't do it, or maybe with the bases loaded, let's make it a longer pitch clock, or, you know, just some modifications to let drama build uh, organically. I think we're going to feel this as the games get more important later in the year with pennant races and playoff races. And as you say in the postseason, I, I don't know yet how it's going to feel when these, these very tense moments. The only one we've seen, you know, obviously since then was a Trout and Otani in the World Baseball Classic. And of course, that didn't have a pitch clock. That was old style. Everybody kind of taking a breath baseball. So I'm very curious how these tense, important moments are going to feel. Or, you know, say a pitcher's going for a perfect game or a no-hitter in the ninth inning. How is that going to feel now versus the way we used to experience that? And Ariel, how, how much money did Kenley Jansen pay you to tell, say that? Because <laughs> I, I think he probably put you up for that because he, I mean, him, I think once 
Soto would benefit from a non-pitch clock. There's some certain players that would benefit from a non-pitch clock. It doesn't matter what inning it is, but especially the ninth inning, I agree. The ninth inning, that's when you have all the everything going around. That's when the most stress, and people are... It, it's like waiting in, in line for a roller coaster. It's going to happen, it's going to happen, and then it's over in two minutes or two seconds, just like uh, the, the pitch or, or the ninth inning. It's, it's something that you shouldn't have to rush. And before we get on to more fantasy strategy... I uh, just want to just mention one thing, uh, Joe, get your take on it. Uh, you know, home runs are up this year. They're actually back to roughly the 2021 level, uh, you know, instead of where they were last year. Do you think that has anything to do with the ball, or uh, do you think that the ball has now gotten more consistent? Because I've heard reports that pitchers are liking the ball this year better. Uh, well, what's up with the ball? Do you have any uh, take on it? It does, the distribution early on. Now, you can actually look this up if you go to Baseball Savant. They actually publish the drag on the baseball. And if you look at the spread early on, the first week or so, it was actually, we were playing with some very live balls, it felt like. Uh, the ball's flying out everywhere, a lot of opposite field home runs. It's mellowed out since, and the distribution looks a bit like it did in 2021, which was a pr pretty average year for power, maybe a little bit ahead. Um, my thing is, though, I don't think this is intentional. I think baseball has, to some extent, lost control of their process. So it's a guessing game each year what the baseball is going to be. They need to get a better hold on the process as opposed to just kind of, hey, well, this is what it's going to be. There has been some wonderful research done by uh, Bradford William Davis, by Dr. Meredith Wells, kind of looking at the baseballs and seeing, well, okay, some of the balls were like this and some of the balls like this. And apparently the Yankee game balls last year were like Super Bowls that we used to play with growing up. So some great research there. You can look that up on Insider, Bradford William Davis and uh, Dr. Meredith Wills. I'm looking forward to their research this year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, same here. And they do excellent stuff. Let's talk a little bit uh, fantasy strategy. And um, just, to, just to set up the conversation, um, I know we've asked this to people before, but it's always good to get a fresh take on it. Um, you know, doing well in fantasy baseball has to do with a lot of things. Luck, of course, is a big part of it. But in terms of influence... Uh, by the you playing the game, it's about knowing the players. It's also about properly valuing them, knowing how much to bid, how much to bid before the season in an auction, or what round to take them, how much to bid on them in fab, the timing of it. And but it's also about knowing all the players, knowing who are the next prospects coming up, who are the guys who are due for a good year, you know, things like that. Do you think? And of course, it's all both. But do you think that it is more important? to know the players or is it more important about the mathematics of how you do value them and play the numbers correctly well i'm i like to think i'm pretty good at knowing the players and my track record in fantasy is terrible so i'm going to say it's more important to value them correctly um i look at i mean i'm, I'm kind of kidding but i look at the the hardcore math where this game has gone in the last 25 years just these brilliant guys and, and girls coming in and doing that hardcore analysis, standings, gains, points, and things like that. And then even beyond that, on the player analysis side, the things that are being done with StatCast. Um, but I, I think that the valuation is the missing piece, certainly for me. And I kind of envy the people who can kind of get in on the numbers and say, okay, this is the number of marginal RBI I'm going to need. This is the number of saves that are left in the pool for me to take in the 12th round. I'm incredibly... Uh, I admire the people that have that math of it. For me, when I sit at the draft table, I'm trying to look at it as a baseball project more, which is I'm trying to find the guys who are going to have the best years. And figuring that if I take the guys who have the best years, it all will work out in the standings. 
Ruvain, do you agree with that? And I'll add to the question for you. Do you think the answer changes preseason versus during the season? It definitely changes from preseason to during the season. During the season, the pool of players that you have to actually acquire, whether it's on fab or whether through trade, shrinks considerably. So the value of those players, depending on your situation, the values of those players go up and down. But you have to know the values of them. You have to know the values in general and to your team. Because during the course of the season, the value of a player who steals, if you have a lot of stolen bases, his value is very low. If you need saves and there's a closer out there, a closer available, his value may be low relative to the rest of the market. But for you, it's worth more. Or same thing with a starting pitcher. So I think the, uh, the idea of whether you have to know the players or, or, the, or value the players properly, I think it's a combination of both because you have to know what you're getting out of each player. And you have to know the, the team, your team construct and what you, your team values more at certain points of the season. I love, I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, you know me. I, I think that the valuing is really the piece. And uh, I'm not going to say that it's more important, but let's just say that it's highly undervalued. That You know, I, I feel like if I went into uh, a, a draft – uh, and I had this, just the steamer projections, right? You know, we about ATC. Just you know, give me somebody's projections that's competent and that's you know been successful. Uh, I know how to value that. I know how to come up with some numbers, and I know how to to put together the right roster to 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 do that. It's the the mathematical construct. I think that that gets it. Um, whether I know the players or not, I mean, I, I go to fantasy football leagues, and I do fairly well. I don't really follow football that well. I follow my Giants, you know. Uh, I know the, some of the top players around the league, sure, but I don't follow it as deeply as I do baseball. Yet I do fine because uh, I just follow the same kind of guidelines of math and, and valuing. Um, so the reason I, I brought this up is I want to talk about fab. We always talk on the show a lot about the preseason and the dollars, but the, tr the truth is that it has to do a lot about uh, fab during the season, right? you got to bid on them uh, uh, most uh, – most leagues that I play in, unless you play in a pick them up whenever you you want, there's some you know waiver wire fab betting where you have to blindly bid or auction or whatever it is to get your players. Um, so first question to you, Joe, on on the fab is you know obviously each each and every team specific situation is the key driver. If you're you know you need power on your team, sure you're gonna obviously be bidding more on power. If you have a lot of injuries, you might need to spend more. You know your team specific situation is the key, but in general, just in a vacuum or so, do you think that fab bidding is more about coming up with the right math number on a return on investment basis to say, well, a guy of this caliber uh, is you know worth X in fab and that's what I need to bid? Or is it more market driven? We know the market's going to pay over this. I got to get that player. We got a game theory to find out what, what I have to bid and bid it and bid a little bit more and play the market. So I'm asking, is it is it a return on investment math deal or is it more uh, play the market and pay market prices? For me, it's more return on investment. I want to make sure that when I make my fab bid, I've mapped it out so that I, I've spent the exact amount of money or hopefully $1 more than the second place guy to get the player I want for the production he's going to give me. One of the, you talk about you know, the market, one of the things I think is hard to do is figure out the market value of the player to everybody else in your league. Because there's somebody out there who lost, you know, who drafted DeGrom, Rodon, and Boydruff and is tearing his hair out right now and will bid anything for Gavin Williams or Gavin Stone or Tanner Vibe. Um, and I don't think I'm good enough to do the math 
for all 11 or 14 other teams in my league to figure out what this particular player is going to mean to them. As Ravain pointed out, you know, this is a dynamic thing as the year goes on. Sitting at the draft table, everybody's kind of trying to do the same thing. Once we're into fab, everybody's trying to do something different in every single week with every single bid they make. So my feeling is all I can do is try to make sure I'm spending my money and getting the statistics for them. Yeah, totally. It's it's very different than preseason, exactly for the reasons you said. But of course, you know, we still have to do it. So I, I even though it's more complicated, I think that this question does post thought. Ruvain, any thoughts on, on whether fab is more about playing the market or, you know, generating a good return on investment per dollar fab? Yeah, I think it's return on investment to a point because if your team is desperate, if your team is in tenth place or 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 eighth place and you want to try to make that jump, yes, you can you can you can do mathematics and make sure you figure out exactly how much you have to pay for servers to get return on investment, but that may not get the person that you need. So yes, you should be conscious about that. But if you need something, sometimes the need trumps the the math and you just have to go out and do it. Sometimes you need to just as they say, splurge on it and, and just and just do what you have to do. So Yes, it is return on investment to a point, but there gets up to a point where if you're doing return on investment and it's not working, it's not working, it's not working, and it's June, you're falling behind, it's July, you're falling behind, you're going to have all that extra fab at the end of the season, and you're waiting to spend it, and you're spending it conscientiously, but at that point, you're spending it conscientiously on what? You're already out of it, so sometimes you do have to pay the market value. So, uh, Rob Silver, uh, friend of the show, uh he put a couple of questions out on Twitter um, and, you know, to, to read off two tweets that he wrote. One question what he had was, if Tanner Bybee is the SP60 rest of the season, so, you know, he values to whatever that is for the rest of the season, um, w- was he worth the cost in fab? You know, Bybee went uh, anywhere between 200 bucks and 500 bucks in the main event. Like, the min bid was 200 the max bid was $500. Um, and the other question he asks is, he says, it's interesting to me that as smart as we are, nobody in fantasy has a really good methodical objective answer to what an SP60 is worth in fab. We're all sort of guessing, or at least if somebody has that answer, they aren't sharing it. Because I know everybody has shown how to value people preseason, but I, I agree with him. I haven't seen people really think about, you know, if the guy evaluates to a top three outfielder, then he is worth what in fab? Like, we haven't seen that. So I thought we could talk about that today and get, uh, you know, maybe a consensus or just some thought process for everybody in terms of how to tackle this question. I thought that was a good question. But before that, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. So I'm going to wrap this trivia around exactly what you just said. I'm going to name off the statistics for two pitchers. I'm not going to give the names. And I'm going to give you the option of either taking pitcher A, who is current SP59, pitcher B, current pitcher SP60, or Tanner Bybee. That's your choice. Okay? So option A is Tanner Bybee. Option two, SP59 has pitched 41 innings, has 27 strikeouts, an ERA of... 4.61 4.61 and a whip of 1.34 with four wins. SP60 is 42 innings, two and two record with 33 strikeouts and 42 innings, a 4.64 ERA and a 1.12 whip. So, Joe, who would you rather have? The SP59, the SP60, or Tanner Bybee? With the caveat, this is the only information I have. I'll That's take Tanner That's the only Bybee. information going on the fact that we're trying to figure out whether or not Tanner Bybee is worth an SP60 slot. Tanner Bybee. Okay, Ariel? 
Yeah, I guess I take Tanner Bybee for the same reason. I mean, I, I I'm trying to think of who who even those guys are, but I, I can't even think of who they are. So the first one, the SP fifty nine, is Kyle Gibson. So yes, I think you'd rather run Tanner Bybee than Kyle Gibson because of the upside. I get that, but the current SP sixty is Aaron Nola. Figure, but put your, put your head around that a little bit. So right now the. Current SP, I know he wasn't valued that during the draft. I understand that, but he's currently the SP sixty. Is he worth the value going the rest of the season? Who would you rather have, the SP sixty, pay for the Tanner Bybee? Would you rather have the Kyle Gibson? Joe, do you think Tanner Bybee is worth an SP sixty current price? I'll still say yes. I'll also say that this is a good argument for not not evaluating pitchers based on forty innings, based on you know Kyle Gibson and Aaron Nola having the same stats. But I would still take Bybee over those two stat lines. Okay, so Bybee, again, went from 200 to $500 a fab in the NFBC, which is anywhere from 20 to 50% of your entire budget for the entire season. I mean, is that too much? At what point do you think that that makes no sense? Well, I want to focus on a word that Rob used here. Rob's a wonderful analyst, and he hit the right word, which is objective. And this is where I get to in, the, in March, in February, in November, I think we can get to objective answers about the value of certain draft positions, about certain auction values. But once you're on, once you're in the season, now you're talking about what does my team need? And in a again, you know, 12 team league, 15 team league, that's going to be a different question for everybody. This range, 20 to 50%, almost certainly has I won't say it has nothing to do with Tanner Bybee. I think we could all sit around a table and come to some consensus about what Tanner Bybee uh, will do the rest of the year. What we don't know is, you know, this guy has eight pitching points. This guy has 48 pitching points. And the difference in those roster constructions is what's driving these price differentials. It's not Bybee. It's what does my team need on May 1st? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and again, it's two separate questions. It's it's right. what is Bybee going to do rest of the season, which uh, according to uh, ATC rest of season projections, 4.4 ADRA, 134 whip. Uh, ATC right now is going off of uh, the Fangraphs depth charts uh, innings pitched, and I guess there's a lot of mix about him being a reliever, so we only have 58 innings. That sounds low. Some other projections, 82 innings, uh, roughly the same ERA, maybe a little bit lower, uh, and they evaluate to about a, a $2 pitcher for you know full season, rest of season. Okay, I mean, you know, y- you can come up with and say, listen, he's a ten dollar player. You can come up with whatever objective it, 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 you know, objective measure you have uh, in terms of a projected value. But the question, of course, is given that, what's it worth it to to you in in Fab? Now, uh, yes, it, obviously, it depends if your team, if you're missing the Grum and you're missing all those pitchers. Obviously, your your uh, demand for that position is going to be greater, sure. But can we come up with some kind of thing in a vacuum where we say he's he's you know worth X? Starting at starting at the top, Joe. In terms of uh, you know, let's say a player would generate a fi- a top fifty uh, um, rest of season value. So he's just one of the going to be one of the top fifty players. What would be the appropriate fab percentage of your budget? to bid so that you'll have a return on investment for that. It's going to be very high, obviously. Yeah, I, I would basically do it from the, how much do I want to be sure I have for the rest of the season? Like, so just to throw numbers at it, if I still have $1,000 fab, I want to make sure I can 
make these $1 pickups every week for the next 21 weeks. So I'd probably want to keep like 40 bucks back. So I'd go as high as 960 for a guy that you could tell me was going to be a top 50 player. I, I would not hesitate to blow out most of my fab in that, in that case. So 96% of your budget should go for one top 50 player? Yeah, that's that's what I would do. So you just can't value, you can't buy value like that. I'd also make the point that you know your fab dollars lose four percent a week. You the first week of the year you're buying a hundred percent. You're twenty six weeks. The next week you're buying twenty five weeks. The next week you're buying twenty four weeks. I have no issues blowing out ninety six percent of my remaining fab budget, especially at this point in the year. Does that matter what type of league you're playing in, whether it's a mixed or mono for you, or it's same general concept? Uh, it, it depends on a lot of things. To to the two main leagues I play in are mixed labor, which is a hundred dollar fab. You can't trade for fab, trade trade fab, and you have to have one dollar bids. That changes the math versus say a a, a AL tout, which just has a thousand dollar fab, and you can trade for fab, and you can make zero dollar bids. So there's a lot of you know, different things happening there. But I I certainly am more conservative in the hundred dollar league. Doesn't have the gradations of fab that you have in the thousand, um, and because I can't acquire it during the year. But in a a NFBC model, I'm perfectly happy blowing it out and taking my chances. I believe that I can find dollar players throughout the rest of the year in a way that I can't find a superstar. Interesting. Ruvain, would you go all the way to 96% on what you perceive to be a top 50 player? I don't think so because those top 50 players, there is a possibility. You're saying one player. Based on the numbers you just said, there are 200 players who actually earn some value. They're not going to be the top value, but that you named a couple that have some pretty good value there. So I think I'd probably go more like 15 or 20% of the total fab just because there are injuries. I want to have enough money that I, I want to get the injury plugs that I need later in the season. There are other guys who are going to come up. I want to make sure I have that. I want to have the hammer toward the end of the season. I want to make sure I get those two-star pitchers that I want. So I have to... If you're going to go after a, a top 50 player, yes, you can spend, I think you can spend, yes, um, $150, maybe $200. But beyond that, I think you have to rein it back just a little bit because otherwise you're going to you're gonna strap yourself for cash later on because you're not going to have the money to fill the slots and you end up getting bottom of the barrel guys. And yes, you're getting that top 50 guy, but the guy you're replacing later on has a negative value and that goes against the whole process. Yeah, I, I think that I, I would want to hold... 30 to 40 percent at a minimum for whole season obviously it depends where you are in the season how badly you know your team is doing but you know in a vacuum from the start i want to hold 30 to 40 percent and then i'd say i'd spend uh, roughly half of that uh, on that top 50 player so i'd probably put down we're talking 300 to 400 fab so 30 to 40 percent on a top 50 player the math in my uh in in my in my uh Analysis showed it's about a three hundred dollar bid. I think I would spend a drop more uh, because then I would deduct, uh, as Joe would, would do, would deduct from what you need for the week to week. But I, I don't think I would go to ninety six. I, I don't think I'm confident that four percent I, I could work with. Um, Top fifty players don't come into the player pool at mid season very often. Think about maybe who the last one might have been. Um, I don't think anybody thought Michael Harris was going to necessarily have that light, that kind of value. Think about Juan Soto coming up in May, a couple of years back. I, you know, if I tell you that it's going to be if Juan Soto suddenly shows up on, on your free agent pool, you would hold back to you know say three hundred and fifty dollars, or even it sounds like Ruvain wouldn't even go that high, as opposed to you know throwing it all out there to get a true superstar player for the next twenty one weeks. 
Yeah, so I think I think I think it's, there's an abstraction we're talking about here. But hey, here's a legitimate guy you would have taken in the fourth round two months ago. Are you really going to tap the brakes? It's also a lot of ticket though, because you don't know which of these guys are going to hit. So right. even if you spend the money on them, it may be a complete waste, and they may blow out their knee a week later. Or for for pitchers, they may end up having a pitch limit and some inning limits, something like that. So if you if you're doing it that way. It doesn't make you know you, you want to spend your money wisely and sometimes if you there there is no guarantee only thing the only two things you can guarantee are taxes and death besides that you can't guarantee that the two hundred dollars three hundred dollars or seven hundred dollars you're going to spend in fab is going to be the next Juan Soto. Well, to hell with you. I'm going to live forever, man. So not oh, that well, not that yeah. crap off. <laughs> but sure, no, I I think it's an interesting discussion when you actually put names on it too to say. The, the the stat line is one thing, but you know you think about the way Harris came up. Harris was a league winner last year. Oh sure, sure. But I mean, like if, I think it's a little bit different if like if somebody dropped by accident Freddie Freeman the first week of the mm-hmm. season, and Freddie Freeman's available. Well, Freddie Freeman is a known commodity for years and years. I think that's very different than betting on a rookie or somebody. Michael Harris, you, you don't know he's going to be great. Juan Soto, you didn't know. You maybe you assumed, but for every one of those two, there's uh, there's how many that are are busts, right? It's it's not a it's not a guarantee. It's a projection, right? Uh, and there's how, how often do you really see a projected top fifty player? In fairness, we're always we're everything we do is projection, right? And sure, I think you sure. know, and talk about guys blowing, you know, Freddie Freeman can blow his knee out. I mean, we could do this all day, but I just, sure, sure. I'm a lot. I personally would be a lot more aggressive with that caliber of player because that's a league winner. And I get that. And I, I man, remain. I love being in, the, in an auction and having you know that extra twenty bucks at the end where I can make sure I get my guys, where I can have the hammer. In Fab, though, I worry less about that and more just let me get this potential superstar to try to win my league. Okay, I mean, I mean that that does work, but if you do need those two star pitchers, those two star pitchers are very mm-hmm. expensive in the end, and that helps you in multiple categories. It helps you in wins, strikeouts. It may hinder you in the in the in the in the in the ratio stats, but those those things people are always looking for two star pitchers in August and September. And if you don't have that extra hundred dollars for August and September to buy those two star pitchers, you know your pitching is going to suffer on the. But you may have a great hitter. That's great, but in order to win your league or to pl- place in your league, sometimes you need a mix of both. Mm-hmm. I think the argument here is not for uh, pushing a, a lot of of what you want for the superstar player. I think it's more for you, I guess, about the split between what you think you could hold for the rest of the season to make the you know the little lineup adjustments that you need. You know, so so you're basically saying, all right, you're good with four percent of your budget for the rest of the way for just everything, and push all the chips you have left. Um, you know, if, if I'm holding. 30 to 40 percent and i said all right i'll, I'll spend a little, bit, a little bit over half that all right so it's a half versus all is, is the difference between us with with the context of that money is losing value every week right 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 well, well but a top 100 player uh in terms of you know in terms of uh what what you would do fab so you would do 96 percent for a top 50 how, how much does that decrease for top 100 roughly it drops off considerably because I think once you're kind of going down the pyramid here, you are, as Rene would point out, taking on more risk with each level down. Uh, there's also a better chance that the player that you're targeting, you can replace those statistics more likely is because he's not quite as good a player. So I think at that point, I'm taking a big step back and dropping into the 200, 20%, if you will, of my budget as opposed to, it's not a linear thing for me. It's very much, what would the word be? Um, uh, uh, 
I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I'm old. Exponential. Uh, lo- exponential, uh, logarithmic, 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 logarithmic. Those yeah. are the words. See, these are the words I used to know when I was 22, and now I'm old. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember them anymore. But it's definitely not a linear function for me. I'm dropping way, pulling all the way back into the 20% range for guys like that. You know, the, only, the other argument uh, about not spending like 96% is that, you know, if you're talking about the return on investment argument where, you know, for every fab dollar, I want to earn uh, two fab, do- you know, two dollars of fab value. You know, if you're spending 96%, the chances of earning a return really, really drop. And you're better off partitioning your fa- – like, sure, you can buy that guy, but are you better off buying two $300 players, right? Because you can earn a better mm-hmm. return or you can have a better chance at a return if you split it into lower segments. So I don't know if that flies from a return on investment uh, uh, argument. I, I, You know, obviously it's player-specific, but um, I, 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 that's why I hesitate to spend that much. On a top 100 player, I that I think I'm with you. I think that uh, you know some somewhere around twenty percent is right because you can still earn a return on that, and yet you know you still have plenty of room to spend on on else. I, I guess where I, where I would differ only is to say that I'm not trying to win the ROI war. I'm trying to win the league. So at the end of the year, if do I that finish, by but you do that by winning winning the ROI award. I, you know? I, uh, no? I don't I don't know that that applies to Fab. I think in Fab you got to buy you got to get the maximum statistics and. If you you're more likely to do that buying a star, I understand the uh, the argument. I, I completely get it. But for me, I'm more confident that I can take the dregs of my fab, and 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 get value, than I can necessarily do it with you know kind of spreading out the risk. If you think about it from a gambling standpoint, or just flip a coin or whatever, are you more likely to hit to win three straight bets or one? You're more likely to win. You're you're basically trying to say you want to parlay three two hundred dollar fab bets. And I'm saying you're better off making one six hundred dollar bet. And I and I, I would actually even cut that in half. I'm not even spending twenty percent. I'm going to spend close to maybe ten percent, eight to ten percent, because those top one hundred guys, those sometimes are not the guys that are the top rookies. Sometimes the guys that sneak through. Sometimes you're able to get these guys really early, really quick. Like Spencer Strider, a lot of people picked him up last year because he was a very good reliever. People didn't spend that much money because he wasn't the closer, so people mm-hmm. didn't spend that much money. But he ended up returning on investment so much, and people, you don't have to spend that two hundred dollars sometimes to get that top. 100 player yeah i'm not sure get spencer strider for eight eight you know for for 0.8 percent of your budget is necessarily an actionable plan every year no i no eight eight percent well listen it, it, it last year how many people how many people had spencer strider early on a lot of, i know i had him very early on because I, I thought it was a good reliever so right. i was looking for mid relievers so i only spent like i got him like the second week of the season i got him for like 20 bucks and and that's right that right there that's that's the return investment that you're looking for but right. you know it, it, you could still get these guys if you get them early enough if you know when to jump in if you if these guys are playing but they're not really producing yet but you think that you see that you see they had the pedigree in the minors and you think they're going to do it and they're available then you should go after them with a decent amount i wouldn't say blow your budget out like a top 50 player but you know i think you could spend some of the money there and still be able to save money for later i guess what i'm saying i don't know that that, like i think i thought the question was you know a projected top 100 player i don't think strider was that last year he turned out to be obviously but in the context of the question, it was, you know, a projected top 100 player, what would you pay for him in fab? At the time you fabbed Strider, I don't think even the most optimistic projection had him that going that high. You did a great job of finding one of these other categories talking about here, like a regular pitcher and getting the ROI on that. And I think that's, you know, in season, that's where all of the value lay. I mean, we're talking about top 50, top 100 players. We can 
disagree on what to bid on those. But the league, you know, the, I think the league winner is if you get Michael Harris for $96. But the other league winners are when you get Spencer Strider for 80 Yeah. No, no, definitely. And if you look at the, the successful guys in the NFBC, I don't think they're, they're spending two three $300 on players. Mm-hmm. I think they're doing it by uh, doing the, the 20 and 30 and the 10 and the 1 and the 2, and occasionally the 50 and 60 and 70 when they need it. Um, you know, they're, they're really maximizing ROI. That's why I just think that anything over a certain amount is prohibitive. It's like, for example, I'll give you an example from the draft. You know, uh, let's say you do your valuations and uh, let's say, uh, uh, you know, let's call it Garrett Cole is the best pitcher, right? And you value him at, at $40. The problem is, or I'm sorry, let me go further. Let's say you value him at $50. Your stack good, he's $50. Problem is when you have a two hundred and sixty dollar budget. Even though if he's available at forty five dollars and your value say fifty, the, the sheer dollar amount is very prohibitive because then it gives you one less roster space and the rest of the money left for you, you can't slice it up enough to get some of the value. So even though the one player might be the right call, it just is prohibitive for the rest of your roster. And that's sort of my argument on why. Um, just spending that much on, on one player, even if it's the right guy, it could be the right call for that one person, but you might be able to get a better aggregate value from other buys later on without spending that. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, and somewhere Rick Wolf just yelled 51. I, I don't know if you guys can hear <laughs> uh, But no, I, I, I think the... I, I think one of the things you can do in NFBC, you play enough leagues, is you can actually try out different strategies in each league. So one, I'm going to you know, be the crazy fat bidder in this league. And over here, I'm going to do the more sane, sober, not Joe Sheehan strategy. Um, so I think that's, there's live experiments that go on every year. Uh, but I, I think it's an interesting, I think there's a phrase I use guys. Uh, the con, the question is more interesting than the answer. I think we oh, may yes. be at that. I think we may be at this point here with this. Oh yes. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by this question because it's not really talked about that much. And this is a game theory part of the fab that mm-hmm. really, really is what wins league, so really needs to be thought out more. And uh, hopefully you the, you, the listener who's listening to this, uh, really walks away with something interesting. And I don't, I don't think we came to a conclusion. I think we just shared a lot of different points and, and reasons, which is exactly what we want to do to stir thought. So Because there's no one right answer. There's, I think it's a combination of everything and, and playing it correctly, that's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's do some waiver wire here. And uh, could be a big week. Uh, a lot of waiver wire guys available uh, Joe, you're the guest. I'll let you go first. Who are a couple of guys who you might want to pick up in your leagues this week? Yeah, I, I will say that I skipped over a lot of the big names. Um, I was looking down this list for, you know, as, as Rufane put it, some of the, the $80 players you might be getting or even less than that. Um, a lot of leagues, uh, I'm not sure if Nick Gordon's been dropped in a lot of leagues. I've held him in, in the league I have him in. Um, but this is somebody who came into the year, potential 15-15 guy. You know, the playing time was a little bit in question. And he's had a he's hitting very bad luck uh, in April. He has very good contact numbers, expected batting average, expected slugging. He's got a really good uh, strikeout rate. He's making a lot of contact. But he was hitting into bad luck. Over the last week, picked up a couple extra base hits. He's hit for a high average. Look for a second like his playing time was in trouble. That looks like it's going to be all right, too. I think he's somebody who dropped a lot of value in April, is probably out there in most leagues, and can actually help you. I think he's still got that 15-15 potential. Yeah, that's a great pick. A guy who a lot of people are high on, and uh, depending upon your league size, that's fantastic. Uh, Ruvain, any for you? 
Yeah, I got a couple, and they're gonna. I'm gonna do relievers here, and a couple on one bench guy. First of all, Brewstar Gratterall. He's been. He's available. In, he's only avail, He's only taken in 37% of CBS leagues so far. He's getting almost as many save opportunities as Evan Phillips, and he's getting a lot of wins because he's pitching in high leverage situations. His ERA and WHIP are great, so he's a perfect guy to have on your roster. If you don't like throwing a starting pitcher, you can put him out there. You may get a, a, a vulture save. You may get a win. Another reliever, Michael King. Clay Holmes is struggling. He's struggling mightily. And it's very possible that the Yankees right now, they're in last place. If they're in last place and they need to change something up, Michael King, he has shown even before he had the Tommy John surgery that he pitches very well. And his number, his ratios are great, and he's available in most leagues as well. Also, Jose Siri, a lot of people dropped him this past week, but Manny Margot is not really hitting that much either right now. So Jose Siri is going to get some playing time. The, the Rays are very high on him. They're a very good team. He's only owned in 16% of CBS leagues. Remember, he was his opening day outfielder for the Tampa Bay Rays before he got hurt. So his value may have gone up, but then gone back down. Now's to buy in the downslide. I just want to make the point that the Rays for a lot of years played Kevin Kiermeyer in center field just for the glove. Siri has fantastic defensive numbers, so he's got an edge with an organization and a manager who likes to get max defense on the field. So even if, you know, he, I think he's got an edge over Margot, and, and I mean, Josh Lowe's been great, but he's they've even kind of platooned him a little bit. So I think Siri is a safer bet because he has the high floor from playing time because of the defense. I love that pick. Yeah, great for Roto. Does a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, you did, you did mention the Yankees going to King. Uh, it's a bad sign for the Yankees because if the Yankees were feeling like they were doing well, they up in the division, then they would give time for Holmes to figure it out. But they just don't have the time to do that. And Michael King has been the better pitcher this year: twenty strikeouts in seventeen innings, one five six ERA, one ten WHIP. Two saves in the year, and they're just going to give over the reins to him because they just don't have time to let Holmes figure it out. Maybe he comes back and gets a save share later, but for now it's king. And, you know, just to go on this closers topic, because I think it's a good week for closers if you need him. Uh, Will Smith on the Astros, the pitcher, he named the closer. Um, he's only only 50% of CBS leagues. Um, if you have LeClerc, you should be picking up Will Smith to back him up right away. I'll I'll mention a few other closer situations. Alex Lang is 45% owned. He's the, the Detroit closer. Detroit, obviously not a great team getting a save, but he's the guy. He's been the best pitcher in the bullpen. He's the guy. Uh, Jahiris Familia, ex-Met, he was dropped, dropped by the Oakland Athletics. You know you're pretty bad when the Oakland Athletics drop you with their 90 RA. Uh, so <laughs> uh, you can get rid of Familia. Zach Jackson is probably going to be the guy. Uh, this is a situation that if you're in a deep AL-only league, maybe. Otherwise, I wouldn't touch in any Oakland A's pitcher, especially reliever. I do want to mention another reliever, Yenier Cano, 20% uh, owned. And I love, I mentioned Brian Abreu the other week. I love these relievers who look so fantastic. doesn't matter if they get saves or not. They can vulture wins. What do you think Cano just did today? He vultured a win. Uh, he And if you have Batista, he's the backup closer. Two saves, 13 strikeouts so far. Zero ERA, .08 whip. No, not 0.8 whip. 0.08 whip. He has literally given up one hit. And that wasn't even a solid hit. The batter literally chopped it up and down. It bounced right over the pitcher. And they threw and just missed him. That's literally the only hit or walk he's given up. This guy looks really good. 
He gave up a second hit today that was just as weak. Bobby Witt on a two, took a two-strike swing, just kind of poked a 17 hopper through the right side. Uh, Cano now, nine innings, two base, two weak base hits, and a hit batsman. Um, I actually got him in tout and missed on a tie. I We, we both had a $1 bid. Oh. I lost on the tiebreaker. And I lost Michael King and Cano that way last week in, in mixed oh. labor. So the perils, I'm not used to being in third place. I'm used to be getting anybody I want because I win all the tiebreakers. It's very strange being high in the standings. <laughs> I want to mention two other relievers, more deep league plays, spec plays. Um, we, we Fans might have saw Giov- Giovanni Diegos get knocked around by the Angels uh, in the ninth inning the other night. Ryan Helsley pitched the seventh. It's unclear what they're going to do with their bullpen. Everybody's getting knocked around right now. But the one guy who isn't is Jordan Hicks. Jordan Hicks, who throws 173 miles an hour and has never actually been a good pitcher. Last week or so, four and two-thirds shutout innings. I believe it's 11 strikeouts. So of the 14 outs he's got, he's gotten 11 of them on strikeouts. Just somebody to keep in mind in the sense because the, the, the raw stuff has always been there. And if they shake that bullpen up, he's got a chance to get saves. And then in Cincinnati, Lucas Sims, who looked like he was going to be their closer a few years back, has suffered a couple of injury-plagued years. They've got Alexis Diaz and really no other good relievers. So on days that Diaz is unavailable or if Diaz were to slip a little bit, I could see Sims stepping in and, and getting double-digit sa- double saves the rest of the way. Yeah, and they're free. We're essentially free now. Yep. You, yep. you don't want to pay thirty percent of your fab next week, right? I certainly don't want you to do that. Uh, you could get them for literally a percent right now. Uh, and if you that. if you wanted if you want to take a, an Oakland closer, Trevor May is actually on a rehab assignment right now. He's mm-hmm. probably the most experienced guy coming when he comes back in that bullpen. So he may end up being the closer. He's only five percent owned in CBS. So if you want to take that risk, I think he's getting paid more than everybody every other pitcher on the staff combined. Yes. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Friend of the podcast. He was on our show a couple years ago. Uh, Ruben, any other players to mention? There's a couple of batters I'd like to, but go first if you have any. Uh, for batters, I think that's just about it. I, I, I'm not really keen on the batters. I think, like you mentioned, this is the week for relievers. A lot of closers, a lot of – when April ends, this is when a lot of the closers start losing their jobs and there's a lot of turnover. So I, I, if, it's, if it's up to me, I'm spending all my money on closers this week. So just a couple of quick uh, batters to mention. Nick Senzel, we, he's always been touted. He's good. Uh, homers, he has steals. He has a little bit of everything, good average. He's just never healthy. Well, he's healthy now, and he has outfield eligibility, and he's playing third base right now, so he's probably going to pick up third base eligibility. A uh, couple of homers this week, uh, good pickup in uh, a little bit more shallow leagues uh, well, uh, in, in deep leagues, he should be owned, but even in some shallow leagues, I'd recommend him. Uh, Lamonte Wade, he's, uh, or Lamont Wade, actually. Uh, he's 20% owned on CBS. He's heating up. I know the Giants platoon players, but he, he's starting to play even against the left-handers, so it's a good sign for him to get at-bats. And, of course, if there's a right-handed pitching heavy week against the Giants, you definitely want to play him. Um, you should be aware of a couple of prospects um, Gavin Stone came up, didn't have a great outing this past week, but very, very high upside. Again, he's one of the pitchers I dubbed this year as a potential this year's Spencer Strider. Not that there has to be a Spencer Strider for this year, but he could be there. And two hitters, uh, Matt Mervis. Um, we've seen him in the AFL. He pitched for Team Israel. Heck, he was on our show earlier this year. Uh, I, I think this guy has totally maxed out the minor leagues. Uh, he could be up for good. Hopefully he's up for good for his sake. Uh, you should be aware of him, and he's an instant pickup. And take a look at Christian Encarnacion Strand. Uh, we mentioned Nick Senzel. Well, he, he'll, I'm sure he'll get hurt, right? Uh, if he does, then this guy could be up. He's batting 
over 400 in the minors. He's got six homers in his first 10 games, including two today. A 208 WRC plus in the minors. This guy looks ready to go. Uh, get him on your rosters before he's called up. He could be free in your league. It's possible. All right. Let's talk some pitchers in our pitcher preview. Joe, who's a, a possible two-start or one good one-start matchup for this coming week? Oh, man, you guys. I got burned by him the other day uh, because Skip Schumacher just decided to leave him out there. But Braxton Garrett, to me, has a really good two-step next week. He goes Monday uh, at, uh, at the Diamondbacks. He goes Sunday at the Reds. Uh, excuse me, at home against the Reds, which is about as good a matchup as you're going to get, even with even if Christian Encarnacion Strand is up at that point. Uh, Garrett had really pitched well up until that horrible start against the Braves on uh, on Tuesday night, or excuse me, Wednesday night. Um, and I think he's really coming into his own as that team's true number three starter. So I, I think that he might be available in some shallower leagues, and that two-step next week looks really tasty to me. Move in. I have two, actually. I have a few, I have three, actually. I have, there's no two-star pitchers. I try to stay away from two-star pitchers at this point, but there are a couple that I do like, and one of them is Josiah Gray of Nationals. He's a little bit uh, shallower leagues. He's 52% owned in CBS, but he's he's got a start this week at San Francisco against Sean Manaya. and Josiah Gray has actually been pitching pretty well. He has a 1.06 ERA in his last three starts with 18 strikeouts. I like that, and the way San Francisco is right now, I think that's a good play, especially because it's at San Francisco, so that's you know I think it's a I think it's a you may not get the win because it is the Nationals but still you never know another one Johnny Brito he was everyone wanted him very early on he pitched very well for the Yankees and but now he's a lot of people dropped him because he had a couple of blowups but this week he's playing the A's at Yankee Stadium I like that matchup he's only 26 percent owned so he's a guy you can get and another guy this is in much much deeper leagues and you want to take a guy for a buck and hope and pray and pray for the best Forrest Whitley he's in the minors right now but look at the Astros starting rotation can you name the five starters right now uh, can anyone here can name the five starting pitchers for the Astros right now you got I Fremont can but I'm Valdez. looking at the page you got Fremont Valdez Christian Javier Hunter Brown and then two question marks because you have to remember Luis Garcia and Jose Arquidi are on the IL so Forrest Whitley, he's healthy. He's actually pitching pretty decently in the minors. He's only 9% owned in CBS, and you want to take a dollar on him? Nobody's, basically, very few people are going after him. He's a guy that he, they may give him a chance this year. Ruben, you've been talking about Forrest Whitley for a very long time. Hope, hope usually, right. usually on the injury aspect. Usually on the injury aspect, but he's healthy. Yeah. I'll mention uh, one name. This is for deep leagues. Uh, Louis Varland. He's pitching for Minnesota. Minnesota has been great this year. I like what they're doing with the pitching. Hopefully it rubs off. A lot of strikeouts. 30% strikeout rate. His numbers have not been great, but look at those underlying things. 15% swinging strike rate. He's been unlucky. 346 BABIP. Uh, the left on base percentage is like in the 80s. So this is a deep play. He's two starts. So you might get something out of him. He's striking out. I mean, a two-start step for him could be 14 strikeouts for the week. That's what he's done so far. Uh, so in leagues where your ERA is in okay shape, you can take a little bit of a hit or a very deep league. Louis Varland is interesting to me. Eno Saras' stuff plus model. Uh, Varland was really popping in that. Uh, a couple of days ago, he posted that. So there's some, you know, some skills backing for some of the numbers he's putting up. That's, I, I actually had him on the list. I want to throw out one more name here. You got to hold your nose for this one, though. 
So far this year, the Brewers have been absolutely horrible against left-handed pitching. That continued in Colorado, of all places, this week. They get they go to Kansas City. Uh, excuse me, they're at home for Kansas City later in the week. Ryan Yarbrough, who threw three shutout innings before falling apart against the Orioles. At this point, you pretty much have to start any lefty against the Brewers, even Ryan Yarbrough. So again, deep league, again, like a $1 pull in a league. Take a shot with Ryan Yarbrough next Friday against the uh, the Brewers. All right, that's our pitcher preview. Time for Ruvain's injury update. Hit it. We'll start with the pitcher. We'll start with Kyle Wright. Kyle Wright was placed on the IL for right shoulder inflammation. This is his second trip on the IL this year for a shoulder issue. Dylan Dodd was called up, but you have to keep in the back of your mind. Another guy you may want to think about is Mike Soroka. He is in the minors. If Dylan Dodd doesn't pitch well, you got Mike Soroka right there. Update on Jose Altuve. He's actually rehabbing pretty well. He's fielding grounders already. He's testing his grip in his bat, but he hasn't been cleared to swing yet. He said the next two weeks for his rehab are really important. It is possible he comes back earlier from the from the injury than anticipated. It's Jake important Berger, for, uh, for our teams, Ruvain. I think I own him on five out of six teams. We, we, we have him on every <laughs> single team, so I'm counting on the days when he comes back. Yes. Um, Jake Berger, he's on the aisle with the oblique, with an oblique, with a left oblique strain. We don't know how bad it is. This is the guy that everyone, you know, bid a lot of money on and tried to get in fab a couple weeks ago just because Moncada went down. He's now out, so there goes your all the fab that people put into that. Hanser Alberto will probably get a lot of playing time, but I don't know if you really want to roster him. Guy, These four pitchers I'm, I'm going to end with, and these are the main starting pitchers that people are itching, wondering when they're going to come back. Brandon Woodruff, he's been on the IL. He suffered. He was diagnosed with a subscapular strain of the right shoulder. The GM there said that his most recent MRI was, quote, very positive relative to what it could have been. His current target date for return is end of June. So you've still got to go another full two months without Brandon Woodruff, so plan accordingly. Tyler Glass now, he threw a bullpen session. He is going to be going possibly on a rehab assignment next week. He's a guy to watch for, and can you imagine the Rays getting any better? It's just crazy. Um, another pitcher, Carlos Rodon. It, the way it sounds like, I, I don't know when he's going to pitch. He had a forearm issue. Then he has a back issue. He's going to see specialists to find exactly what it's going, what's going on. There's something going on there. I don't know when he's going to pitch. I, if, if he's going to start ramping off, if he started ramping up now, you maybe get him back in mid to late June. There's a possibility he may be out to the All-Star break. I, I have no, no one knows exactly what's going on. He's a huge question mark. And, of course, our old friend Jacob deGrom. He is on the IL with right elbow inflammation. He is scheduled to play, to play catch this current road trip. He's eligible to return mid-May, and the Rangers are hopeful he will return that. But we have heard this story before. Yeah. Is anybody shocked about deGrom? No. No. Uh, this is the risk. I mean, you guys are Mets fans. I don't have, we don't have to ask yes. you. Yeah. Ravine, let me ask you, um, based on what you just said about Radon, in a NFBC-style league where you only have the seven I guess it's seven uh, reserve spots, no DL, is he droppable for you now? He's close to droppable because how much value are you going to get out of him? You may get two and a half months out of him. Um, if you think you have someone on the waiver wire that will surpass that or you have someone or you're going to you you know, find something better than him, if you need the roster spot... Who's going to pick up Carlos Rodon next week? I don't think anyone's. I don't think anyone's going to pick up Carlos Rodon next week. You can drop him, and you could probably pick up the following week for a couple bucks. Because who's going to spend a lot of money on Fab for Carlos Rodon at this point? Yeah, Joe. In the NFBC, if you're playing and Rodon's on the on the uh, wire, how much are you spending on him this week? I'm not. Right. So if if you exactly. if you if you're not going to pick him up, then he's droppable. 
just pick him up next week for free, right? He, he's droppable now. You don't need this. Or spot. wait two weeks or three weeks until he's closer to, to returning. Then there's some risk you lose in that somebody else in your 12-team league decides, hey, I'm going to spend a dollar and I'm going to roster Radon. But from what I understand, the roster spots are just so incredibly valuable without DL spots that it's just it's, if you're carrying a zero week after week, it kills you. Well, that's what that's what happened to us last year. Someone in our NFPC league dropped Sal Perez, Salvador Perez, and we're like, he's sitting out there, and we're thinking no one is going to spend on him. This was like around uh, end of May, beginning of June. No one's going to spend on him because they think he's going to come back in September. So I think we bid like two bucks on him, and he, we got him, and he came back early, and he gave his talk about return on investment. He had a great September. So you know, it's a matter of when you want to drop these guys. If you think it's worthwhile, if you're going to get them next, if someone's going to pick up the next week, and if they're going to get picked up next week, then it's basically you have to hold on to them and waste the wasp spot. It also depends on your situation because if if you're a, if you're a team that's in 15th place right now and you see Rodon on the waiver wire, you might say, well, you know, I'm not going to get good just all of a sudden. I might as well go for it, and sure, let's just roster Rodon right now. If you're in first place and you need to churn and just need that production – then he doesn't fit your roster, right? It's a matter of risk and where you are in the standings as well. That's true. All right. Well, that's the end of our show. It was a good one. A lot of good strategy, a lot of interesting takes. Uh, Joe obviously knows his baseball, uh, very articulate, and very much enjoyed having you on the show, Joe. Uh, can you uh, just tell the audience where we can uh, all follow and uh, read your work? Uh, most of my work now goes into the Joshi and Baseball Newsletter, which will turn 13 in a couple of weeks. I'm very excited about that. It can, that's what I need, two teenagers now. I've got a 13-year-old daughter and I've got a 13-year-old son with the newsletter. Uh, but people can check that out at joshian.com. There's excerpts of everything I do. There's occasional free pieces. There's actually a page that has a lot of old free pieces from the past you can check out. It is a subscription product. It was one of the first subscription baseball newsletters out there. So you can check that out. There's an email link on joshian.com. Send me an email. Let me know you heard me on the on the Beat the Shift. I'm happy to send you a couple copies, and uh, you can see what it's about. But uh, JoeSheehan.com. I'm also on Twitter, although I'm trying not to be, at Joe underscore Sheehan. All right, check that out. And Ruben, what about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates, next man up, that sort of stuff. I also have a weekly article for Rotoball that comes out over the weekend to help you prepare for Fab on Sunday. And I'm Ariel Cohen. You can see my stuff over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer. The ATC projections are live, rest of season now. Um, and, of course, uh, follow me on Twitter at ATCNY and listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. All right, once again, thank you so much to Joe Sheehan for coming on the show. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.